is someone who owns a bunch of businesses in Manhattan where Alvin is the DA, uh, ranging all the way from a venture capital fund to a bookstore. To hear him talk about the business community and business integrity, like, Alvin, how about my employees aren't afraid of getting mugged? How about my employees aren't afraid of getting shot? If you want to help the business community in New York, help me help my employees want to be here, right? You know, protecting the integrity of business records is, is really pretty lame. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and Ricky is out today. We have a special guest, so I'll introduce in a second. A few announcements. We have a big announcement coming about the future of Lost Debate. I'll talk all about it on Thursday, but if you follow our socials over the next 24 hours, especially tomorrow, you'll learn all about it. We also have a, I think, probably my favorite episode of Sweat the Technique, which is our podcast all about you know how educators are taking lessons from the classrooms and schools and applying it to all aspects of life. It's probably my favorite episode where two rock star principals and superintendents talk about parenting and how they're raising their kids. And so that'll be on our episode tomorrow, Wednesday. Uh, I also want to remind folks that we have a voicemail, 321-200-0570. Please keep sending in ideas. I think we're going to do a Trendy Thursday again soon, so keep sending in ideas for about what we're going to do there or Trendy Tuesday. We haven't decided yet. But I have a special guest today, uh, my friend Bradley Tusk, who's a businessman, venture capitalist, political strategist, writer. He's the founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures, a venture capital fund focusing on investing in early stage startups in regulated industries. So he's a glutton for punishment. <laughs> uh, his foundation, Tusk Philanthropies, is working to bring mobile voting to the United States and, as we'll talk about, solve hunger in the United States. Bradley, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. We've got a fun lineup today. We're going to talk about effective altruism and the fallout from Sam Bankman-Fried. Basically revisiting a story to say, hey, is this philosophy and way of giving worth saving? We're also going to talk about the you know, growing trend, perhaps, of people moving from blue states to red states. Is it actually happening? And if it is, why are people moving? But first, let's revisit this Trump indictment. We have major breaking news, indeed historic breaking news right now. Three sources tell me a Manhattan grand jury has indicted former President Donald Trump in connection with the hush money payment scheme. This indictment includes 34 counts. They are 34 counts that are felonies, David, and they are falsifying business records. We saw the former president emerge from the motorcade, give a quick wave uh, to supporters on the scene outside the courthouse and make his way in underneath that scaffolding. I'm sorry I'm so upset, but please help President Trump. If you can fi afford five or ten bucks, if you can't afford a dollar, fine. Just pray. Breaking headline at this hour, just in, the former president has pleaded not guilty. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. He also caused others to make false statements. My lawyers came to me and they said, there's nothing here. They're not even saying what you did. The criminal is the district attorney because he illegally leaked massive amounts of grand jury information. For which he should be prosecuted or at a minimum, he should resign. Well, Joe, I touched on this briefly last week, but only for a few minutes. Fill our audience in on you know what they've missed since we did our last deep dive here. 
Yeah, so it's been a pretty tumultuous last few weeks for Donald Trump. A grand jury indictment was unsealed on April 4th, charging the former president with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records for allegedly ordering and covering up hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign and being involved in a catch and kill scheme with America Media Inc. to pay off playmate Karen McDougal and a for- former Trump Tower doormat. Now, Trump turned himself into prosecutors on April 4th while the media was in a frenzy to track his every move. Many Republicans have denounced the indictment and Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg calling the case against Trump a politically motivated prosecution. Robbie, as you just mentioned, you you talked briefly when the news first broke uh, that you were unsure about the standings in this case. Has the unsealing of this indictment changed your mind at all? Well, Bradley, you're a counterintuitive thinker, so I want to get you in on this really quickly. Uh, I think we don't know everything about this indictment, but we do know that the underlying charge is this falsifying business records in the first degree. And, you know, basically in order to prove that this is a first degree, uh, you know, falsifying business records crime, meaning it's a felony, you have to basically link two crimes together. You have to be falsifying your business records in service of another crime. And... We don't know everything, but I think we generally get the gist of what Bragg's after. I feel like he's reaching, but what is your sense here? Um, Look, a a few things. So one is I would love to see Trump go to jail, go away. With that said, a couple of things really worry me here. One is um, I don't think it is helpful to charge him and lose. And John Edwards already beat this same claim. Um, two, there are other charges, as we know, especially Georgia, that feel very substantial, that seem to be pretty imminent. Um, and I would rather be taking on Trump with stronger charges than weaker charges. The third is, you know, Bragg's interests are not mutually exclusive with Trump's, right? So for Bragg, he is now a hero on the far left. He is the first prosecutor ever indict a, a U.S. president. Um, he has, you know, done something that a lot of people have wanted to see happen for a long time. And the outcome of the case doesn't necessarily make that significantly worse for him, right? You get a guy who's had a very rough time being DA, has had a pretty rocky tenure, um, does not particularly want a lot of attention paid to his actual work so far. And this is both the perfect distraction. Um, and it kind of wins him a place in history, kind of regardless of the outcome, but, but here's the biggest problem to me, which is um, just like it made sense for Alvin Bragg and his own political career to indict Trump kind of regardless of the facts or the outcome, we know the same thing's going to happen in other jurisdictions where they're going to indict President Biden or Chuck Schumer or Hakeem Jeffries or whoever it is. And we just get into this game of complete legal chaos where if everyone is spending all of their time defending themselves against baseless criminal charges, they can't actually do their jobs. To me, the corollary actually is the FDA, is the decision by the judge in Texas last week to strike down the FDA's approval of mifeprostone, which is one of the two abortion medications that people use. Um, If you have individual prosecutors and judges now saying, federal law and norms no longer matter at all, right? We're just going to make any drug we don't like no longer legal. We're going to indict anyone we don't like, whether or not we actually have the grounds to convict them. Um, We're just hitting to a point where the fabric of society is being torn so much that you wonder whether or not this is a sustainable country. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And you're already starting to see people on the right call for these investigations. Obviously, they've been trying before, but I think they have a little bit more pep in their step on this. And I think that the test here should be, especially when you have elected prosecutors, is if your political career is served by bringing a prosecution, especially if it's a prosecution of a political opponent or you know somebody who your base really hates, then you should exercise extra caution in bringing those charges, right? It doesn't mean that somebody has impunity, right? Like if Trump, you know, did in fact shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue or whatever, like he said, obviously he should be prosecuted. He shouldn't be above the law. But when you're bringing charges, you should be able to explain how these charges fall in line with the precedents of the office, which I think Bragg did not do a great job of. And second, if you have a political incentive to prosecute somebody, then you should recuse yourself and allow career prosecutors to handle politically sensitive cases so you shield yourself from the politics of it. Because what I saw from Bragg was that he was getting pressured from a ton of people in Manhattan, basically saying, we're going to hold you accountable if you don't bring these charges. Like back when he said he was backing off these charges, people went crazy about it, basically saying they're going to primary him. So, you know, I'm with you. I think this is a really dangerous step and and I'm a little concerned about it. Right. And it also just gets to the the fundamental, I would say, underpinning that's sort of destroying democracy overall, which is because of gerrymandering, every single election in this country is decided in the primary. Primary turnout is typically 10 to 15 percent. DA's races are no exception to that. And so if you're Alvin Bragg or you're Kramer in Philadelphia or you were Budin in San Francisco or, or, or Fox in Chicago or wherever else – you know who that 10 to 15% is. It tends to be the furthest left voters. And if your goal, like every politician, is solely to be reelected no matter what else happens, um, you're going to do whatever it takes to make that group happy, regardless of sort of the broader public policy implications of something. And so we're just heading down a world that more and more allows everyone to purely satisfy very small groups of constituents at the expense of the greater whole and just leading to overall polarization and dysfunction. Right. And I think like what's fascinating to me is, you know, Bragg, when he was asked about this, he points to the the bis- business records fraud and the the I- the interest of New York State in preventing business records fraud. Let's go to this clip. This is Brad Garrett Hake with NBC News. Uh, your predecessor took a hard look at this case and decided not to charge it. Federal prosecutors took a hard look at this case and decided not to charge it. Do you believe you have new evidence that led you to decide to charge this or why now? As I, as I just mentioned, we have uh, had available to the office additional evidence uh, that was not in the office's possession prior to my time here. Uh, and as to uh, your, your part of your question about the, the federal, we have a distinct and strong, I would say profound, independent interest in New York State. This is the business capital of the world. Uh, we regularly uh, do cases involving false business statements. Uh, the, the, the bedrock, in fact, the basis for uh, business integrity and a well-functioning business marketplace is true and accurate record keeping. That's the charge that's brought here, falsifying New York State business records. So I, I have questions about this because as a, as a regular person looking at this, I think people are going to be like, well, tell me why him falsifying his business records is bad for everybody else, right? That's what I think was missing from this is to say, all right, like, is he not paying his taxes, right? Because that people can understand to say, all right, well, he's falsifying his business records to not pay his taxes or the the charge that people thought was going to be attached to this, which still might be, which Bragg has talked about is, did he falsify his business records 
uh, as a step towards falsifying elections uh, disclosures as a way to shield from the American people critical information. And this is probably the best argument in favor of these charges, which is that the margin of victory was just 80,000 votes in three states uh, in 2016. All this activity was right before the election. Michael Cohen uh, and David Pecker, the two people who carried out these crimes with Trump, and you know, one who's pled guilty already to charges, the other who entered a non-prosecution agreement, have all said that they were engaging this activity to shield the American public in the election from this information, you're starting to then get into a crime that I think is worthy of the charge. But my question is, Bradley, and we don't know the answer to this, my question that I'm just left with is what evidence they have that Trump actually uh, Beyond just just besides those two people, right? You know, at least one of whom has very suspect credibility. Um, what evidence would they have that Trump actually was paying off Stormy Daniels to shield it from the elect the electorate, as opposed to just shielding it from his wife or protect his general reputation? Right, at, at least enough to be able for a jury to say beyond a reasonable doubt, here is what happened. Right. So we know that no matter how uncouth or sort of immoral Trump behaves, it doesn't really seem to change his sort of political supportive fortunes one way or the other. The guys can probably point to his own life and say, I'm sort of a walking scandal. So, you know, I might have my own reasons for wanting to sort of keep this quiet, but clearly um, all of the rest of my political career would imply that this is not really the the primary motivation for it. Um, That's number one. Number two is I have to say as someone who – owns a bunch of businesses in Manhattan where Alvin is the DA, uh, ranging all the way from a venture capital fund to a bookstore, so you know retail to, to high finance, um, to hear him talk about the business community and business integrity. Like, Alvin, how about my employees aren't afraid of getting mugged? How about my employees aren't afraid of getting <laughs> shot, right? Especially the people who work in my bookstore. Like, we have to have regular security trainings and briefings because there are so many people who walk into the store who are mentally ill or criminal in some way and clearly fear no ramifications because of the bail law we have and because of Alvin's track record and views on prosecution. And so if you want to help the business community in New York, help me help my employees want to be here, right? You know, protecting the integrity of business records is, is really pretty lame comparatively. Right. And and you probably won't be surprised at this. I, I was a big Alvin. Uh, I was a member of his team when he ran, and you could add this to the pantheon of races that I regret. <laughs> but the but you know a turning point for me was this uh, bodega clerk. If you yeah. remember this yeah, situation, we covered yeah. it here on Lost Debate, where this clerk was basically attacked and defended himself, and Bragg attempted at first to prosecute him. And it not only was immoral, in my opinion, because I think it betrayed a lack of sympathy for people just trying to go about their lives in Manhattan and make, uh, you know, make, you know, like support their families, right? Which I think was an outgrowth to some of the 2020 politics, where I think a lot of people were like, quote unquote, protesting in Manhattan, but you were seeing a lot of people just destroying the lives of business owners and somehow trying to connect that to social justice. So there was, I think there's a lack of sympathy for just people trying to make their way in Manhattan. But what really concerns me when you connect it to this case is there was a general incompetence in that case, like the inability to communicate with the public, the inability to just even manage a simple case, the inability to even think about the discretion of a prosecutor properly. And that's what worries me about Bragg and his office's inability 
to handle this, like th- a case of this profile is like, I just don't have a lot of like confidence in the people in that office to, to actually handle something like this. Yeah. I mean, look, I think part, so I, I've worked in a variety of different political offices in my career, right? So I've worked in city government, state government, federal government, the executive branch, legislative branch. I'm a lawyer. So I sort of understand the judiciary piece. I've run electoral campaigns. I feel like I've seen it from every angle. And, and there's a clear distinction in my mind between ideologues who are in office to try to promote a specific ideological agenda and where they belong, and executives who are actually responsible for the well-being of real people, right? So AOC isn't exactly the perfect job for her. She has no actual responsibility. She doesn't actually run anything, and she can be as ideological as she wants, and you can agree with her or disagree with her. That's fine. But for example, here in New York, when Bill de Blasio was mayor, it was a disaster because you had a guy who saw the world through, solely through an ideological lens trying to do a job that is an operational job, right? That, you know, I, I worked at City Hall. It, running the city of New York or any city is about keeping it clean and safe and well run. That's the job. It's, it's not about trying to, you know, inherently change capitalism or anything like that. And Bragg is an ideologue, um, and he's not equipped to actually run this office. He's proven that now repeatedly. And so, yeah, it's and the worst part is he's going to get reelected because now he did the one thing that people on the far left wanted to happen more than anything else. um, And he's probably going to be there for a long time, making our borough worse and worse. I'd like to get your take on this. The, um, Nicholas Kristof from The Times argued that if, if Michael Cohen, the agent, was sentenced for doing Trump's bidding, then shouldn't the principal be sentenced as well? Are you are you convinced by that at all? Well, I think the first question is, was Michael should Michael Cohen have been prosecuted is its own question, right? I do think that that's in somewhat the hysteria that's been at work and going after Trump was at work and going after his underlings. You look at his CFO, for example, Tish James, who openly campaigned on going after Trump and did not recuse herself from that case, um, is bringing these civil charges against the Trump organization for fringe benefits. Now, I don't know a whole lot about who gets prosecuted for fringe benefits, but when I was looking at that case, they could not point to a lot of examples of other organizations that were subject to the kind of scrutiny that Trump was. <clears throat> so there you had, just like with Bragg, a politically motivated prosecution where all the signs point to the incentives to prosecute a <clears throat> a candidate who went even further than Bragg. Bragg made some statements that I gave him a hard time about when he was campaigning, but he did not go as far as Tish James, who you know basically was rallying up her base, you know, all but promising that she was going to go after Trump, uh, and talked about his pattern of law breaking. And then they started going after his underlings. And to me, not one of these cases yet. I think Georgia will be an exception because I do think that that was a true like crime against our democracy, potentially. Not one of these is something where they're able to provide a long record of other people who've been charged with similar crimes. No, I mean, one, one thing that to me is interesting, and I think this is, having worked in government a lot, I actually don't believe in conspiracy theories because I think the level of competence that it takes to actually execute them is vastly higher than what you normally have in government. But to me, the best argument for Bragg's indictment 
is it will help Trump within a Republican primary, and he is actually the weakest opponent for Biden to take on, and therefore, if our goal is to elect Joe Biden, that's certainly my goal, um, then you know we actually want Trump uh, to succeed. So I guess if Bragg is willing to make himself sort of the stalky horse here where he's willing to lose a case um, just to help Trump politically in, in the nomination process, maybe that's not a bad outcome. I am pretty sure that's not how Alvin's looking at this thing. Right. Uh, I think, so I, I think that that's like a good segue, I think, of just like what happens now. There are many scenarios here, right? There's scenario one, which is the indictment hurts Trump in both the primary and the general. And there's polling out there that we'll link in the show notes to show that by and large, to the extent you trust polling, most Americans are saying, yeah, Trump probably did this. This is either serious or somewhat serious. Um, 60% of Americans approved of the indictment in a CNN poll. I have all sorts of questions about how we should treat those polls, but that's at least what the polls are saying. Scenario two is that the indictment hurts him in the general, but not the primary. And in this case, you could also look to polling to show that 75% of Republicans agree that Democrats and law enforcement are working to delegitimize Trump. Jason Miller from Trump's team talked about how they raised $7 million in the days after his indictment. Um, you know, DeSantis dropping the polls uh, Trump is raising. There's obviously other scenarios that this could hurt him in the primary, but not the general. That's unlikely or that it helps him in both the primary and the general or a scenario where it just doesn't matter. I have no idea. Uh, honestly, I have no idea what this is going to do for him. Right. One one other, because the, the fun thing is you can just sort of game this thing out in a zillion different directions, which is, so if, if you're Biden, what you want, I would argue, is either Trump to be your opponent or for Trump to go through the process of the nomination, lose, claim it was stolen from him because I don't think he's capable of doing anything else, and then using that to divide the Republican Party. And if you can even keep 10% of Trump voters at home, like, like you mentioned earlier, so few votes separated so many key states, that's probably enough to make the difference. However, interestingly, the one reason in my mind why Trump might support the Republican nominee and might actually try to help that person win is if he needs a pardon from them, which means if you're going to indict Trump on something, there's an argument that at least pre-election only indict him on the Georgia counts or even what Bragg's doing here in New York because the president can't pardon someone from a local crime. They can't pardon them from a federal crime. You sort of don't want to give Trump any incentive to want to ultimately support DeSantis or whoever the nominee might be. So there's a million ways to gain this shit out. Yeah, and you you make me wonder about Georgia, for example. There's there'll be a lot of pressure on a Republican governor to pardon Trump after the charge. I don't know what the Georgia pardon laws are, but I imagine the governor probably has that power if it's a state crime. All right, Joe, before we move on, speaking of which, just give us a rundown of all of the cases that Trump is facing right now. Yeah, you guys mentioned some of them. So including this investigation in Manhattan, Trump is the subject of at least four major investigations into wrongdoing related to his handling of White House documents, the election, the insurrection, and his finances. So as you mentioned, there's a prosecutor in Georgia who's investigating Trump's alleged efforts to overturn his 2020 election defeat in the state. There's the Department of Justice who's also looking into the role Trump and his allies played in trying to overturn the 2020 election. There is a separate investigation by the DOJ into the classified documents found, found at Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago and possible obstruction of efforts to retrieve them. You know, And that's on top of the plethora of civil lawsuits against Trump 
including New York Attorney General Letitia James's suit against Trump, his family, and the Trump Organization for alleged uh, inflating the value of his properties by billions of dollars, you know, along with some other accusations. So it doesn't seem like Trump is in an auspicious position with the, uh, the, some of these lawsuits here. Yeah. And, you know, just from a procedural aspect, this case now goes to discovery. So, uh, you know, we'll be finding out potentially more information about what Bragg has. You also, uh, there, there's speculation that Bragg's office is looking for a January 2024 trial date and that Trump's team is trying to push it back for the spring. Obviously, January 2024 will put him right at the start of the Republican primary, basically right before Iowa, which means that you could potentially have a presidential candidate, at maybe even the front runner for the GOP nomination, having to sit trial in the sort of most you know, heated days of a presidential campaign. So, and then we're going to have a bunch of hearings where, you know, Trump's team is going to try to get the charges dropped. They're going to try to get this case moved to Staten Island, et cetera. I would not hold my breath on any of these uh, motions. I think you're probably going to head to trial. He's probably not going to settle. So, and Bragg probably wouldn't offer him a settlement that he'd offer anybody else facing such charges. So this is hopelessly heading towards a trial date in the middle of an election. We've covered effective altruism a little bit in and around the Sam Bankman Freed scandal because he was a high profile proponent of effective altruism. But let's take a step back and dive in even deeper because Bradley is, has written about this and has a lot to say about it. But Joe, before we kick it to Bradley, what is effective altruism? Remind our audience. Yes. Yeah, so effective altruism is a philosophical and social movement that says that we must rigorously apply evidence and reason to work out the most effective ways to improve the world. Now, since the term was first coined over a decade ago, billions of dollars have been committed based on effective altruistic principles. But as of late, as you mentioned, the movement has been tarnished by the scandals of some of its most biggest advocates, including Sam Bankman-Fried. Now many are questioning if this is just a hiccup in the movement or if it's time to move on from effective altruism altogether. So Bradley, I'll, I'll turn to you since you've recently you know, written a piece on your approach for making effective altruism even more effective. What's your verdict here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think the first question is sort of like you said, you, Joe, you, you gave a good definition of effective altruism, but I think it means different things to different people, right? So to me, the thing that I like about it conceptually is the recognition that people have different things to contribute. And it's not always that the person who works at a nonprofit and, you know, lives in the right acceptable neighborhood in Brooklyn and everything else is sort of the person with nobility and the Goldman Sachs trader who's actually willing to give 20% of their bonus away to a good cause is automatically evil, right? The reality is um, I turned out to be pretty good at making money. Um, I devote the majority of the money that I make at my fund and in other businesses uh, to my foundation and things we care about, especially mobile voting and especially childhood hunger. Um, but the real value I provide is the money, right? So when we are running a campaign in Connecticut like we are right now for universal school meals, yes, my team definitely has political expertise and we have connections and all this other stuff that is helping us pass these these bills around the country. But without the underlying cash to pay for the campaign itself, you know, I would just be yet another political guy with ideas and, and no ability to execute. So the the basic concept of sometimes making money and using that money will effectuate 
more change and have a greater impact than just traditional nonprofit advocacy. That makes a lot of sense to me. With that said, effective altruism to me also is what will yield the highest ROI on any dollar spent uh, to charitable purposes, right? So the reason why the movement likes things like mosquito nets and anti-malaria is it saves a lot of people in Africa uh, from death and disease uh, for a relatively low amount of money. So the ROI is very high. However, um, I think it's a really narrow way to look at it. So if you look at the hunger stuff that we do, so out of uh, Touch Philanthropies, we fund and run campaigns in different states to mandate programs like Breakfast After the Bell, Universal School Meals, Expanded Snap for Seniors, And the idea is you have a lot of issues uh, around food security that are not that politically controversial. We're not talking about guns or abortion here. Um, But because the food advocacy community are lovely people who – lovely people usually are not particularly great at politics, um, they fail where they should be succeeding. And our question was, if we applied real political expertise to these campaigns, and if I were willing to pay for all the costs of administering a real campaign, paying for lobbyists, PR firms, polling, ads, grassroots, all that other stuff, could we have different outcomes? And the answer has been yes. We've passed bills in 20 different states. we have unlocked about $1.5 billion a year in new government spending, a combination of state and local and federal for hunger programs. That came at the cost of about $5 million of my money, about 12 million more people now have access to food on a regular basis. So I would say $5 million bucks of my money helped unlock a billion five every single year now in new hunger spending, and that we're going to add a couple hundred million to that this year by the time that we're done with all these legislative sessions. So um, – you know, I wrote my column for Fast Company about that to say effective altruism doesn't just have to be defined through Will McCaskill and a couple of guys at Oxford, you know, defining it for their own benefit. Um, it could mean a lot of different things. But I will say, and Ravi, I'd be shocked if you didn't agree with this. You have tons and tons of political nonprofit advocacy, which may be kind of well-intentioned, but A, is highly ineffective, and B, the success of their organization um, and their ability to kind of keep getting paid by it matters a lot more to them ultimately than the underlying cause itself. Well, for sure, and you look, look no further than you know cause that you and I care about, which is public charter schools. There is this massive blob of bureaucracy in and around advocacy for public charter schools. And I think, you know, you could probably shrink it down to 10, 20% and reallocate a lot of that money to creating more schools and just spend the 10 to 20% more effectively. But in part because of a lot of reasons, one is each billionaire has their own foundation, which is redoing the work of another billionaire, et cetera. They're getting a little bit better at this over time, but they're not doing the equivalent of just saying, all right, let's put everything into one pot and say what's effective or not. Like you look at, for instance, Tennessee, uh, you have like 12 different organizations claiming to do politics and advocacy. So there's a consolidation that needs to happen. But second, one thing I, I was nodding along a lot when I was reading your piece is just the the disposition and attitudes of a lot of people who do this work. They're nice people. School people are, are like the hunger people. They're nice. They don't want to ruffle feathers. They don't want to attack their opponents. They don't want to do the sort of bare knuckle politicking that's required often to get the work done that they need to get done. And that's why I found your article so fascinating is to say, look, like, like you got to get a little muddy sometimes to get good done. And it was a reframing of, of effective altruism. And so I'm with you on that. And I'm also with you that like, 
I think there's so much focus on what does Peter Singer think or Will McCaskill think or Sam Bankman Freed think. But I think effective altruism really just asks a simple question, which is what's the most good you can do, period. Like, and people can define that for whatever they want. You don't have to be a consequentialist or a utilitarian. Um, you don't even have to embrace earn to give, right? Because I think that's what people really hate about, uh, they try to, like attack effective altruism on yeah, but the people who hate that are people who are no good at earning money, and so they feel <laughs> that it validates themselves, and that's why they attack it. Yeah, I will, or or I would say they're they're good, but not as good as you at making money. Because I think the people who really attack earn to give are the anangiridas types, the the people in the in the top ten to twenty percent like who read the Atlantic and all that, but not the 1%. And this is a big fascination of me in our politics right now, which is there's this this sort of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, 10 to 20% of the American left who are very, like the 10 to 20% upper echelons who are doing really well, are doing, at, you know, they're doing as well as they've ever done. Um, they, you know, a big part of our inequality in our society is also wrapped up in their gains. But... Uh, they find it politically convenient to find people in the 1% and just talk all about how they're going to re redistribute that 1% and point out the failings of that 1%. And I think critiques of effective altruism fall squarely within that because uh, it gives people a convenient out to say, all right, like, let me, you know, poke fun at Bill Gates or poke fun at, you know, Reed Hoffman and say, all right, like, you know, you're propagating a monopolistic system uh, of inequality, and then you're trying to get credit for giving money away. Uh, but I think that people aren't turning the mirror inward and saying, well, are you giving enough money away? Like, are how much of your money are you giving? Are you trying to do it effectively? Like, do you have your own framework, you know? I would argue that uh, a lot of the social norms that are now considered the right ones in a progressive movement are driven by the 16th percent, right? And these are not people who are in the 80th percent or ever were in the 80th percent, and they've never lived in real poverty. Um, and in many ways, they had a lot of the same opportunities, people in the 1 percent, but for whatever reason, lack of talent, lack of risk tolerance, lack of worth ethic, whatever it is, um, they didn't make it, right? And they can sort of look at the world in one of two ways. A, I wasn't skilled enough to make it. I wasn't hardworking enough to make it. Or B, everyone who did make it is corrupt and greedy and immoral. Um, and I'm just going to want to continually scorn them for that because then I feel better about my own failure. And I think whether it's the New York Times or MSNBC or, or 20 other outlets, it's purely about providing that moral affirmation so people can feel superior when in reality they don't do very much, right? So like I get beat up by the far left all the time from told that I'm an evil person. You know what? I volunteer at a soup kitchen every single Thursday I have for the last 30 years. Um, I never see any of these people attacking me coming to, to ours or any other to actually do it. Tweeting and complaining is not the same thing as helping people. Yeah, I think, you know, and obviously – there are exceptions to every rule, right? There, you know, I have some of my Bernie friends and Elizabeth friends who are some of the, you know, most generous people I've ever met. And obviously there are super rich people who support those candidates. Obviously there are trends. Uh, but what you said resonates with me in a way is like, you know, I started this nonprofit with Cos Marte, who I think you know, is, but he's got a business right on your block there uh, down yep. in Lower East Side. We started this nonprofit in the middle of COVID called Second Chance Studios right in June of 2020 as the black squares were going up. And, you know, this is, you know, a lot of symbolic 
politics were happening in June of 2020 alongside some substantive stuff. What I find fascinating is that a lot of, a lot, I wouldn't even say a lot, almost every person I know in my life who was like, how come you're not out there protesting? How come you're not throwing out a black square? Would not lift a finger to help organizations like ours a year, two years later, because it was no longer the fad, right? And I think this is what effective altruism to me should be an antidote to short-termism. And this is like a big part of the debate around effective altruism is to say, all right, let's let's not see an earthquake and just make that the charity we give. And like now we've like overwhelmed the Red Cross with donations, which of course that's great, do that. But like have a long-term plan to make the world a better place. And I think when you start to see uh, you know, arguments for people like Singer, it's almost like he's he's going out of his way to piss people off to make a <laughs> point. <laughs> like he he had this argument about the Make a Wish Foundation, uh, which I thought was like honestly like I I respect anybody who's willing to go to the places that he's willing to go. He reminds me of, of Christopher Hitchens when Hitchens went after Mother Teresa. It's like wow, this takes a lot of guts. But uh, basically, what he said was. He went after uh, this whole big thing where they had a kid dress up like Bat Kid and a whole city like did a whole orchestrated thing. And he's basically, how much did this cost, right? Like, yes, we want this kid to have a great experience, but is the Make-A-Wish Foundation really the best use of our funds? And I find this the perfect flashpoint for the debates around effective altruism because I could see both parts of the argument, right? I could see people be like, look, we can't be like, pulling up a spreadsheet every time we want to do good. Like sometimes a kid's just dying of cancer and the right thing to do is try to do something fun for them. It's like, it, it goes beyond like, you know, numbers in a spreadsheet and some utilitarian calculus. Uh, and the same could be said of building a beautiful library or a park, et cetera. Like, like if under Singer's ca- calculus, you know, we wouldn't have any beautiful things uh, in government in the U.S. We'd just be shipping all of our money abroad. But on the other side, I, I see Singer's argument, which is like, look, there's just a lot of dumb things we spend money on in philanthropy. And a lot of it has to do with our own vanity and not to do with effectiveness. So I, I, <laughs> I don't even know what my question is other than to be like, I do see the point. Like, we want to make sure that not everything fits some utilitarian calculus, but I think we could be doing a lot better. Yeah, and and I also think that if philanthropists were a little more willing to take a little risk and lean into politics, um, they could achieve a lot more. So everyone focuses on elections and super PACs and all of this stuff, but the reality is there are so many issues that if you just had a a modest amount of money and political skill behind the actual campaign to pass something or whatever it is, you could achieve exponentially more. Now, yes, uh, a lot of the stuff that I do at my foundation, we don't get the tax deductions uh, because it's considered C4 activity of some kind. And yes, uh, look, hunger is, is pretty non-controversial, but the mobile voting stuff that I do is is very controversial. And so you have to want to get beat up uh, by people who have, don't really know the first thing about what they're saying. But if you're willing to just take a couple of those costs, um, your ability to effectuate change is so much greater. And so part of, to me, where the effective altruism movement needs to go is towards saying to people, um, sure, buying malaria nets is fantastic, but you know what? So would be, you know, supporting these types of legislative campaigns in these different places because you could then leverage government spending um, and have a disproportionately, you know, higher impact uh, than you could just by buying malaria nets. One is linear and one is nonlinear. Bradley, do you think at all this this could lead to a slippery slope? I mean, if, if we're pouring more money into some of these legislative efforts, don't you think money will be pouring in the opposite direction? 
Well, I think that Coach and others have done a pretty good job borrowing money from the opposite direction already. Um, and so I, I feel like we're already on that slippery slope. And look, I mean, there's two types of things, right? So there are your highly ideological issues like guns, like immigration, like abortion, where to me, you need a underlying structural solution. The reason that I am trying to make it possible for people to vote on their phones in elections is because until primary turnout goes from 12% to 36%, it's going to always be in the interest uh, of the elected official to embrace sort of radical positions on either side um, that can't be fixed. So sometimes you need that. But sometimes there's an issue like hunger where it's not that anyone was wildly against it. Like, yeah, eventually we'll hit universal school meals in 40 states and then the last 10 will be hard because they will be so sort of red that they just won't support it. But but it was more that you just had a lack of resources, a lack of sophistication, the people in charge of the problem uh, not knowing what they didn't know and being relatively unsuccessful and ineffective. And so at, at the very least, Joe, I think if you could identify issues that um, might not be widely ideological and are just more practical, but they just need some more political support and resources, you could do a lot of good. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Cokes, and I think this is probably a, a good place to to end this is I think in a way there's some of the most effective, effective altruists out there, not because I believe in their worldview, but I think Charles Koch doesn't just create this apparatus because he wants to improve his businesses, right? He's old enough now that you could say he's not going to live enough years to like reap all the benefits of what he's doing. I think he truly believes in this libertarian world that he's he's been pushing and he's been able to leverage his money. He's almost like a a, a weird funhouse mirror version of what you're describing to solve hunger, et cetera. He's taking his money and he's, you know, you know, to say he's doing polling advocacy, all that is is an understatement. You know, he's leveraging his money like a million fold to to create the world he wants. It might not be the world I want to live in, but he's certainly doing that. Yeah, great. I mean, I definitely res- res- respect the, the perspective that he has on it, even though I don't, like I said, I'm, like you, I probably agree with very little of what he's actually in favor of. Joe, there's been this debate going on around people moving from blue states to red states. I I particularly picked this issue because Bradley's on here and he has a lot to say about what we're doing in blue states to either encourage people to stay or not. But before we get there, just layer some data on us right now. Like, what are the, the trends right now? Sure thing. So in 2022, California lost nearly 350,000 residents. New York lost about 300,000, and Illinois lost more than 140,000. On the other hand, states like Florida and Texas saw large population gains, Florida gaining over 440,000 residents in 2022, Texas adding over 470,000. Other big gainers include North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia, all of which, except for North Carolina, have Republican governors, while, of course, California and New York and other population losers have Democratic governors. Yeah, Bradley, what's going on here? I, you live in New York. You, you know, you've been involved in government business here, et cetera. I think you, like me, love New York, but also yep. have some questions about where we're heading. <laughs> uh, I do, I what, do. What do you think's driving this? I mean, I, th- I think it's a few things, right? So look, there are things that 
are not political, you know, natural beauty or weather. And if people just really want to be in the Rockies or if they just really want to be in 90 degree heat at all times, nothing you can do about that. Right. But but a lot of this is political and it's questions of both one focus on the right policy so that people who have the means to both pay a lot of taxes in New York just as easily move to Palm Beach or Austin or whatever it is, choose to be here. And two, creating an environment where they want to be here, right? And so I think you have sort of two different problems. One is you have taxes and regulations, some of which, by the way, are totally necessary and effective, but some of which are not. So New York State's bail laws, which in my view have significantly increased violent crime, um, that is a message to me to say, as much as I love this city, when I get to the point where I'm literally afraid for my children to go outside, and hopefully we'll never get to that point, but if we do, we're going to live somewhere else, right? Um, and, you know, when 50,000 people in New York City pay 50% of the local taxes, it doesn't matter how much you as a progressive may hate business and hate capitalism. I know that you want money to go uh, to schools. I know that you want money to go to healthcare. I know that you want money to go to TANF and all of these things. And that requires people to pay the taxes. And so some of it are policies that lead to changes in quality of life um, that make it less likely people want to be here. But the other part is tonal, right? And the level of moral excoriation from the far left uh, towards anyone that they deem doesn't have sufficient moral purity, even if they agree with you on 80% of stuff, is solely serving to drive people away who are paying the kind of taxes for the stuff that you care about, right? And when everyone who has a slightly different view with you on any issue is now just inherently evil, um, you're basically saying to them, we don't want you here in New York. We don't want you here in California. And you may feel that way, but whenever actually leaves um, and there is no tax base anymore, you're going to feel very differently. And the people who suffer the most are the people who need the help the most. Yeah. And well, taking a step back, let's let's kind of take one of the, these issues one at a time. The one I'm, I'm most fascinated by is housing. Uh, let's hear from Adam Kamins from Moody Analytics. It actually has less to do with politics than you might think. So the biggest reason why people are moving to red states has to do with the fact that red states generally are cheaper there's more plentiful land, housing costs are a lot lower so they can get a bigger house. Um, they also can get a better quality of life and that might mean warmer weather. It might mean parts of the mountain west, just you know, better scenery than you might get on parts of the East Coast. That is the single biggest set of factors more than any one policy actually that's driving it. I agree with him that housing makes a huge difference here. So the median home price in the top 10 gainer states uh, is 19% lower than the top 10 loser states, but that's not divorced from politics. Like the reason yeah. why housing is so expensive in New York and California and places is in part because of our politics. We make it really hard to build things in places like New York and California. And so I do agree with them that housing is, is a huge part of this, but it's not the only story. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems that, that we have is the ideals of progressivism and liberalism and then sort of the individual policy positions often tend to conflict, right? So the idea would be we want to make more affordable housing available so that more people can have a decent place to live. I think most people, at least on the left, would agree with that statement. But then if you're insisting that there has to be extensive environmental review before every project, an extensive community board and local approval, and every project has to be built union and everything else, you're taking the underlying goal and making it virtually impossible, not unlike schools, right? I would think we would all sort of agree with the concept of 
We want kids to get the best education they possibly can, and the system should be created in whatever form maximizes their chances of getting the best education. And yet then the left somehow believes that it is their moral imperative to oppose charter schools, right? Even though, and look, there are some bad charter schools, but there are a lot of charter schools that are significantly better than their public school counterparts and equivalents. And the fact that for some reason people think that the progressive thing to do is to oppose that just shows that, you know, the underlying issue that they purport to care about and then the optics that they're so concerned about often conflict. Yeah, I think it's that's that's part of the issue is like, I don't think it's just tax burden for people, right? I think it's the tax burden plus how the money's being spent, right? So if you look at the average state tax burden for the top 10 inbound states, uh, it was 7.7% compared to 9.9% for the 10 outbound states. And if you start to peel back the layers, it's not just income taxes. There's all sorts of, as you know, like if you're trying to start a business or you're trying to purchase a house, there are all these hidden costs to living in a place like New York. You're handing money over to the government. And to me, I'm a, I'm a Democrat in part because I believe in the capacity of government to do good. But then you, when you read things like what Brian Rosencrantz wrote in the New York Times, we interviewed him about it, that it's more expensive to build a mile of subway track here by many orders of magnitude than anywhere else in the world. Or the way we're spending money in our schools, where we had a state legislature who, yes, voted down charter schools. But even if you don't like charter schools, they also uh, refused to implement aggressive tutoring programs at the same time they were dramatically uh, pushing for lower class sizes, which is something that we've talked about on this podcast has very little data to back it up, but has a lot of support within the teachers unions. You start to see things are getting more and more expensive around us. The government's not getting any better at spending the money they're taking, but they want to take more of it. And so I think for a lot of people, even Democrats, they're saying, you know what, like, I can't even find a place, you know, to to bring my kid to play. We haven't built anything awesome in this city in a long time. You know, we're living on the backs of, you know, sacrifices that were made a hundred years ago in terms of our infrastructure, and we're not making good decisions with money. Yeah, we keep saying we're going to tax the same one percent who are just moving down to Miami. I think people look around and just being like, all right, like I just don't hear a story about how things are going to get better. Yeah, I mean, look, I I pay a lot of taxes. I pay a lot of local taxes, and I'm okay doing so, right? It's not like I couldn't move to Miami tomorrow if I didn't want to, um, but I really want to be here in New York City. But A, look, I, you know, I was, as, as you know, was Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager ran for mayor and worked for him at City Hall. He had a basic view of city government that I think was right, which is it's a template. And if you can make this template clean and safe and well run, then the rest of it takes care of itself. Then businesses want to be here. Tourists want to be here. People want to live here. Events want to come here. And all that then creates jobs and economic activity and tax revenue and art and culture and all of these things. Um, and if you start to sort of undermine the underlying value proposition itself, if the city feels dangerous, if it feels dirty, if it feels unsafe, uh, then people don't want to be here. Um, and then when you add on to that, this level of constant sort of just moral excoriation uh, of anybody that does have money in New York City, regardless of what they do with it and regardless of the fact that they're choosing to live here and pay all of these taxes when they certainly don't have to, um, all combines that the message that I can tell you that people like me here is get out, right? And and so, yeah, I can ignore it because I also have a lifetime in politics and I can kind of see through these things a little more easily than your average sort of, you know, fund manager can. But I'm telling you, that's what they're hearing. And if that's what you want, keep doing it. Um, but then good luck when the tax base is gone entirely. 
Well, you know, one person who's made this part of his national brand is Ron DeSantis. Uh, let's go to a clip. This is what he had to say about this migration. But here is, I think, why um, the migration has been so telling. It has had a, a political char character to it. It's not just, well, I'm going to continue to believe that this is a good way to govern on the left coast or in New York, but I'm just going to come to Florida to, to get the taxes, because we've always had lower taxes. That's not anything new. There's a whole host of other factors uh, that, that attracted people to states like Florida. And so people will ask me, are they going to move from those deep blue states, vote like everyone votes there, and then change Florida for the worse? And here's what's happened. When I got elected governor in 2018, there were close to 300,000 more registered Democrats in the state of Florida than Republicans. And prior to me becoming governor, we had never had more registered Republicans than Democrats in the history of the state of Florida. Today, the latest numbers are we now have 271,000 more registered Republicans than Democrats. You know, he's not wrong. We looked into that data. That's correct. And, you know, the political realignment here is something that Democrats should take note of, because in the last census, uh, Texas gained two seats in the House of Representatives, Florida, one seat, Colorado, one seat. Colorado is a fascinating test case here because uh, Polis and the general gist of Democrats in Colorado is way more libertarian than other states. So in many ways, it gives Democrats a roadmap here, like try to keep taxes low, government really effective, spend money really well, expand when you know you've got the ability to carry out your promises. Uh, Montana gained a seat, North Carolina gained a seat, New York lost a seat, California lost a seat, Illinois lost a seat, Michigan lost a seat. So you start to see some kind of realignment. Now, there are countervailing data here. There's, you know, West Virginia lost a seat, Ohio lost a seat. So it's not all just red to blue. Uh, but there is something going on here politically, and DeSantis definitely wants to make this part of his narrative. Now, I would say, as somebody who, you know, d who disagrees with a lot of DeSantis has to say, I'm not sure I would feel welcome there either based on some of his politics. But there, it is a sense like there's there's competing narratives here where young people are trying to figure out where to go. Uh, they're trying to figure out where to start their lives. And people who are starting families are also trying to figure out, all right, where can I afford to be and where, I, where am I going to be welcome? And more often than not, they're choosing places like Texas and Florida. Texas and Florida make up only 15% of the U.S. population, but accounted for 70% of its population growth in the past year in 2022. So like these states are winning this migration. Yeah. I mean, look, like you said, there's a series of choices that real people make, right? Which is where do I want to live in terms of where am I from? Where are people who I love already living? Where are the best economic opportunities for me in the field that I'm interested in? What's housing prices like? What's the weather like? Is it safe or unsafe? What are taxes like? I mean, there's a bunch of different variables that normal people take into account. They're not just looking at a state's sort of laws on abortion or immigration or anything else to make these decisions. You know, some of that does have an impact. And I think generally speaking, when we look at people like people and like human beings that are complex and they're not all black and white one way or the other in terms of their decision making, 
I think you can understand that uh, you can keep people places like New York and California, keep them paying higher taxes, but you have to be sensitive to things that they are concerned about and care about. And when you reduce everyone to a statistic of some kind or an assumption, um, that's when you get into trouble. Look, I mean, Texas has been turning blue from what I've heard of now for the last 30 years. It only gets more and more red, right? Why? Because there's this assumption that, oh, well, if, if you're a person of color, you have to be a Democrat. And guess what? They're not. Latino men are becoming more Republican. They are Democrat. Trump won Florida in 2020 exactly for that reason. And so I think when, when we make these assumptions where we just treat people um, like they just fit into our pre-existing uh, view of, of what they're supposed to be like, and that's all we do, um, and we dehumanize them, then we lose them. Yeah, and I would say... I'd be remiss if I didn't just say, I love New York. I know you do too. I think this is the most dynamic place on the planet. I think the energy here, the creativity here, the drive here, the collection of talent across every possible industry continues to be the greatest in the world. You pick any industry, whether it's the arts, whether it's business, whether it's finance, you know, whether it's theater, you know, you could pick almost anything, pretty much everything, politics even with the UN, Comedy. it's either one or two. Comedy, yeah. It's either one or two. Uh, on almost any measure in the country. So it continues have, to have a pull. It's why I live here. I'm sure it's why you live here. Yep. Uh, but I also think that the pandemic is uh, combined with some of the, the, the politics of this is a challenge to the story that New York is telling because people no longer have to go to those midtown office spaces at, like they used to, right? There are just fewer people have to show up in person they're starting to show up, you know, they're starting to work from home or work in satellite offices, business are moving elsewhere. So we have to fix this narrative around New York. Like, why do you want to be here? Why do you want to be in New York? We have to really build on that creativity, that capacity for, you know, aggressive change in industry, the, you know, you know, rubbing elbows with the very best and brightest. And you have to make it as hospitable for those people as possible while asking them to contribute, but asking them to contribute in a way where they feel like their 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 energy, their dollars and cents, the dollars and cents, all of that is being respected in a way. So I don't know. I'll get off my soapbox, but it's just to say, like, I still love this city, uh, and I'm sure people feel similarly about places like California, but I do think we have some work to do. Yeah, I agree completely. One positive thing is we now, at least Eric Adams, have a mayor that seems to like New York City and seems to like being mayor. <laughs> yeah. um, so that helps <laughs> yes. a little bit compared to the guy we had before, which seemed resentful of the fact that he had to show up for work at all, even for the two or three hours a day that he did manage to make it to City Hall. And so, yeah, I think that's right. Like, w w this is the greatest city in the world. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, my friend Howard Wolfson and I created something called the Gotham Book Prize. And every year we give $50,000 to the best book uh, published that year that was set in New York City or about New York City. And the reason we did it is exactly the point you made, Ravi, which is there's sort of two New Yorks, right? There's the New York that you and me and Joe have where it's tangible. It's the streets, it's the schools, it's the playgrounds, it's the subways. And then there's another New York, right, that the rest of the world sees. And New York's one of the few places in the world that basically the entire global population is at least aware of it. And that exists through books, movies, music, TV shows, podcasts, whatever it is. And as long as that New York continues to have this mystique as the place where the most interesting, exciting people go to do the most interesting, exciting things in the world, we're always going to draw the best and the brightest. Um, but we've got to be able to maintain that mystique, right? And I think that uh, 
good political leaders understand that, buy into it, and enhance it. Um, and when you're tearing it down, even if you don't actually mean to be harming the the city that you live in and perhaps that you even love, um, that's the effect you're having. Well, uh, I, I could talk about this forever, but we are out of time Bradley, uh, thank you for being with us. This is really wonderful. We should have more of these conversations. Yeah, uh, yeah. Lo- I lo- love to come and take on a piss off your audience. So, and, and well, I think well, one thing I want to say is like we have way more libertarians than you realize because Ricky is fifty percent of, of right. our right. hosts, and and I'm probably not your average Democrat anymore. You're not. But the but. Uh, tell us where we could find your podcast. Yeah, so uh, I host a podcast called Firewall. Ravi was on uh, a few weeks ago. It's it's more about the intersection of technology and politics, kind of based on my work uh, in, in venture capital. It's on every major platform, and I should just put in the plug, which is we record uh, out of a studio at a bookstore called P and T Knitwear, one eighty Orchard Street, so right in Ravi's neighborhood. Um, I happen to own that bookstore. Uh, would love for people to come by. It's an indie bookstore, um, and the podcaster is the only one that's free for. For anyone to use that we're aware of anywhere. So if you want to host a podcast, please come check it out. You want to buy some books, we'd love your patronage. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of The Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Nick Perrone. Research support from Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Video editing by Julia Waldman. Audio editing by Dean Metherall. 